it's um it's 2:49 p.m. and i got to tell you i'm in bed um not through any illness per se um i'm not unwell in the sense that well i'm a bit unwell i've got a, a slight cough that's been keeping me up at night non non covy cough that's been irritating me you can hear a little growl in my voice i'm sure um but the reason i'm in bed is because i got in very late last night i went to a book launch um the launch of the brilliant jesse child's uh, seed of loyalty house which is her new book uh, set in a single siege in the english civil war um i've yet to read it i was going to start reading it today um in tribute to uh, the excellence of the party jesse hosted to launch the book last night in london but there was a problem and the problem was i don't have the book now i bought the book at the book launch which is is good form that's what you're supposed to do uh, I've got Jesse to sign the book at the book launch. That's also um, standard operating procedure. She wrote a lovely message in it. Um, and between that happening and me going home at the end of the night via several drinking establishments, public and private, I'd, I'd lost the book. Now, I do know where the book is. Someone else picked it up. They were about to wrap it up and give it as a gift to a colleague of theirs called Owen. Only when they opened the book, the book they'd picked up wasn't dedicated to Owen. It was dedicated to Dan. That's me. That still leaves Owen's book. I don't have Owen's book, so I can't trade Owen's book for my book. I don't have a book. I can't read the book. I I cancelled my order on Amazon of the book earlier this week because I knew I'd be buying the book at the book launch. Anyway, the point is, I, I'm in bed talking to you and I haven't read any of Jesse Charles' Siege of Loyalty House, which means I can't tell you anything about it at all except for the fact that the reviews have been superb. Um, shall we, shall I look up one of the reviews so you can, you can know what I'm talking about? Let's have a look. What are people saying about Jesse Charles' The Siege of Loyalty House? Um, well, here's, this is from the Times of London. Leander Delisle says, There's poetry in this vivid account of the long savage siege of Basing House. A bloody civil war battle. Um, Leander Delisle knows what she's talking about. So, let's see. Is there, is there a good line? Hmm. It's a long review. Is this interesting? You listening to me silently reading a review to myself about a book I haven't read. Is this good? Is this what they call great content? Here we go. The Siege of Loyalty House is not only deeply researched, says Leander Delisle, 
Child has composed a wonderfully poetic narrative and adds a touch of the Gothic. That's that's a pretty good recommendation, if you ask me. Um, anyway, here I am in bed, feeling feeling tired, and uh, and absent a book. Should we stop talking about this? I think we probably should. I probably should. Um, how are you? What's going on? What have you been up to? How's your week been? Gosh, I can't believe it's a week since since we were last talking. Have you done anything nice? Has has anything good happened? Have you been surprised by anything? Has anybody given you a gift? Was it perhaps your birthday? Was it perhaps not your birthday? Chances are stacked against it being your birthday. Um, but if it were, if it was, I hope someone made a fuss of you. Um, what I've been doing, or one of the things I've done this week, was I posted a question uh, on the History Etc. mail-out, Substack mail-out. And the question was sort of pegged to, to an anniversary this week. As all Tudor fans will know, May 19th uh, is the uh, anniversary of the death of Anne Boleyn. And when I say anniversary, that's not an Anne pun, although it could be. It wasn't intended as one. Um, this week, so yesterday, if you're listening to this on the day in which I post it, assuming I remember to post it today, which I didn't do last week, um, but I'm going to do my best today. May the 19th, this week, marked the 486th anniversary of Anne Boleyn's death. Um, and I think we all, I think we all know what happened, don't we? I, she, she got into some bother. She got into a bit of a pickle. <laughs> bit of a pickle at the court of Henry VIII, her husband. She was his second queen. Um, things went south pretty rapidly. And, uh, yeah, in 1536, uh, she was tried uh, for a whole panoply of absurd and trumped-up charges, including adultery, conspiracy, imagining the king's death, uh, witchcraft, you know, incest, that sort of stuff, the bad stuff. And uh, inevitably was... Uh, inevitably, that was an Anne pun. <laughs> Absolutely dreadful. Um, Anne Bismal. Uh, <laughs> should we make this a theme? Shall we? Uh, <laughs> this is really bad. Uh, I'm not going to... Maybe I am. Maybe I am. Um, <laughs> what am I talking about? Yeah. Uh, in, inevitably, she was <laughs> found guilty... And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I'm, just, I'm getting myself into, I'm tangling myself up here. And she was, uh, beheaded on a scaffold by a French executioner, brought over from Calais, skilled with a sword, removed her head with one, uh, swish of the old swordy. And that, as they say, was that. Or was it? Not really. It wasn't, wasn't really, because we're still going on and on and on about her nearly half a millennium 
after she died. So uh, my question was, why, you know, let's take us our premise. Excuse me, I'm going to do more little coughs. Okay, I'm back. Um, let's take as our premise uh, the fact that people are obsessed with Anne Boleyn, shall we? I know people who, who, who dress up as Anne Boleyn, uh, who, who I think I've met people who believe they're the reincarnation of Anne Boleyn. Um, people, people get pretty hot under the collar about old Anne Boleyn, but the question is, why? Why her? What's Why are we so obsessed with this particular Tudor Queen? What is her legacy to us today? That was what I asked on, on the old... Uh, the old discussion thread on Wednesday to the subscribers. Big up all of you subscribers. Um, and he's, I'm going I'm to go through a few of the excellent comments. Oh, the comments are always excellent. I've got to say, can I just say, the standard of uh, historical discussion in the comment section on my little substack, wow, you guys do it. Do the business. Um, I can see why we're friends. So let's go through some of the good ones. I mean, let's 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 start with the simple stuff. And I've, there's a couple of comments here, both of which have the virtue of of great simplicity. So Neil Jones says, "I think Anne simply fascinates people because." They believe she's been wrong. Wronged, sorry. And Julia Dietz says, No one's saying it, but we love a doomed woman. Now, those seem like pretty, ostensibly pretty straightforward answers, but I think they hold an enormous amount of truth if we extrapolate and, and turn them over a little bit and think about what uh, grabs us in history in general. Um, let's start with Neil's proposition that one of the things that uh, fascinates people about Anne Boleyn is the fact that she has been wrong, that there was a miscarriage of justice, uh, that there was, um, you know, all-out political assault on Anne, which ended with her uh, removal from politics via the most violent means available, i.e. her execution. Um I think most historians, possibly with the exception, and I'm, I'm racking my brains as I speak for major serious historians who've written about Anne Boleyn, almost all, with the probable exception of G.W. Bernard, would agree that Anne was innocent of the charges levelled against her. Uh, these were cooked up, politically motivated smears on her character designed to remove her from politics, orchestrated by Thomas Cromwell, uh, abetted to some degree, and I think historians would debate among themselves the degree to which uh, he was abetted um, consciously by his master, Henry VIII. Um, okay, so assuming we, we, we go along with that pretty uncontroversial statement, we're talking about an injustice. We're talking about the, the mechanisms of justice uh, being deployed in um, an unfair and false way in order to uh, to do an um, great violence, great and lethal violence. That, of course, that's an injustice, right? 
But here we are, 486 years later, not only Anne, but all the protagonists uh, and antagonists, all the people involved in, in this case, are long dead. All their immediate descendants and family are long dead. Nobody in this world today is materially affected by what happened in 1536. I think that's fair to say, isn't it? So why do we feel like we're invested in this story? I suppose it drives out one of the things that, that motivates us to be interested in history per se. Um, now, there are lots of reasons to get in, interested in history. You know, some people get interested in history because they believe that uh, it can be a sort of predictive, a partially predictive tool for uh, analysing the present and the future. Yeah, I spent this morning reading a very interesting piece uh, by the, the uh, modern British historian... Um, Neil Ferguson, who writes a column in Bloomberg, who is writing about similarities and differences between the world economy and the, the economies, uh, uh, both financial economies and, and, in a sense, military economies of uh, of the world today. And he was comparing Neil was comparing them to uh, broad the broad global situation in the nineteen seventies and saying we could be facing a return to conditions that superficially uh, resemble those the world experienced in the 1970s and what does that mean and he, he made some ve- I, go seek it out if you're interested in that sort of stuff because neil makes some interesting broader points about history in his column where he says you know history doesn't operate in neat patterns and it doesn't uh, predict the future but it can be a useful tool uh, for analyzing where we're going and, and finding some precedent for what might happen um, that's one reason to, to be interested in history. That's not a reason to be interested in, in the story of Anne Boleyn. One of the reasons to be interested in the story of Anne Boleyn, and we'll get on to some of the others in a minute, is it drives out the, um, the emotional, empathetic motivation for being interested in history, which is a complicated way of saying we get involved in history because we buy into stories and we buy into... Um, the human drama. So, in the and I think that I think that's one of the reasons why the Tudors is uh, the, Tudor, the Tudor England is such a perpetually fascinating and much enjoyed area of history because it binds together serious. Uh, I don't mean serious. Um, it binds together big religious and cultural and economic and political stories with what you might call, crassly, a kitchen sink drama uh, in which relationships between spouses and and siblings and uh, parents and children have massive historical repercussions. Um, but we buy into the historical story on the level of the soap opera, on the level of the um, the melodrama, on the level of the psychodrama, on the level of uh, our engagement with and um, an empathy for characters as though they were uh, dramatic characters or characters, even real characters that we could we could plausibly relate with or relate to today. Um, 
so to circle back to Neil's point about Anne, people believe that she's been wronged, yes, but that's not just a historical judgment. That's an emotional judgment in which uh, we sort of feel instinctively that her wrongedness is a reason to return again and again and again to her story and that we are somehow in some sort of metaphysical way helping Anne or, or, or inserting ourselves into the sort of uh, the, the cosmic nature of this story. Have I gone too far? Was that not what you meant at all, Neil? Are you thinking, what a load of bollocks? I've never heard such, such shit spoken into an iPhone in my entire life. You wouldn't be the first to listen to a message from me and think that. You won't be the last either. <clears throat> let's sort of dance sideways uh, to Julia Dieter's point, which is, we love a doomed woman. Um, and I, I have a... I'm in wholehearted agreement. Uh, it's not, as Julia says, no one's saying it. I mean, it's by that I think she means this is not a fashionable uh, opinion to hold. Um, we're not supposed to, particularly in, in prevailing uh, cultural climes in the anglophone world at present, it's not that fashionable to admit that we have, a, as a society, a sort of mawkish fascination with stories in which violence is committed against women and that uh, either secretly or um, in a much more obnoxious way, maybe it's not more obnoxious, either secretly or openly, Lots of people are drawn to stories in which violence is perpetrated against women, and specifically against women. And the Anne Boleyn story is is a has misogyny at its heart. It's not the um, dispassionate. It's not a dispassionate attack on a political actor in the same way that, for example, uh, in a few years earlier, Thomas More had been executed for falling foul of <coughs> factions at court and the king himself. Um, we're not interested in, it in, in solely in that sense. There's some there's extra poignance, or extra resonance, or extra appeal in a in a in what might be quite a disgusting way uh, with Anne's story because specifically because of the fact that she's a woman. Henry VIII executed and lots of politicians and non-politicians and the vast majority of them were men we are particularly fascinated uh, with Anne Boleyn and sort of brackets with Catherine Howard although I think that story is uh, less well known than that of Anne Boleyn um, and I think that we you Julia you may well be right we're interested in this story because it's about a woman and there's a sort of uh, an, an added frisson that really, when you analyse it, is 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 horrible and obnoxious, uh, but we still feel it. There's an added frisson because this is uh, this is man on woman violence, and that's that's pretty much a constant throughout the whole of history. So those two simple points uh, actually, I think, lead us into quite uh, quite deep historical waters. Thank you, Julia, and thank you, Neil, for contributing. Let's move on a little bit. Well, here's a quick point, says Jennifer. She gave us Elizabeth I, 
and she was wrong. Well, I think we've done the wrong bit. Uh, she did, because Elizabeth I, that's quite correct. Elizabeth I, daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, and the last of the Tudor monarchs, and in terms of certainly visual presentation, um, maybe the most magnificent of the Tudor monarchs, and, and makes she's going to make top top ten, possibly top five, possibly top three lists of greatest ever British monarchs. Uh, don't you worry about that. So, yes, Anne Boleyn, as mother of Elizabeth I, played an, an, an extraordinarily important part in British history. Um, and Elizabeth was supposed to have, have had a, a, a you know, um, locket and mementos of her mother uh, throughout her life. Um, we may also speculate, I suppose, that one of the one of the reasons, one of the reasons, by no means the only reason, but one of the reasons that Elizabeth I chose never to marry may well be that the example of her parents' marriage was not an enormously compelling one. Um, hmm, well, who should we go to next? What about Deborah? Deborah says, as a historian, Anne Boleyn is not my favourite wife of Henry VIII. Oh, well, interesting. Okay, we, we a little bit of dissent in the ranks here. This is this is good to, good stuff. As a woman, okay, as a historian, Anne Boleyn's not my favourite wife of Henry VIII. As a woman, it's almost impossible not to be empathetic with her. There's that word again, empathy, which we've talked about a little bit about already. She was caught between her family ambitions, the wishes of the king her pride and the pressure to produce an heir. She learned firsthand that in politics there is no family, love or friends, only interests. That's a very interesting point. That's, and, you know, again we return to this, uh, this strange binding together within the Tudor story, which you also see, I think, in the, in the first generation of the Plantagenets. Um, this is Henry VIII and Eleanor of Aquitaine generation. We see that here is bound together the themes of family, love, and friends, as Deborah puts it, with um, with high politics. Uh, and Deborah's point, I suppose, is that uh, although we we historians looking back on this are are sort of fascinated by this period because we see crashing together stories about family, love, and friends with political stories. Uh, Deborah's contending, if I'm reading her correctly, that uh, the the brutal lesson of history when lived is that uh, these things do not do not mix I've got a line just popped into my head from the notorious B.I.G.'s Ten Crack Commandments but it's really offensive I can only tell you the first bit of it because then you're going to have to go and if you want to know but it is offensive he says money and blood don't mix but then he uses a simile which is really uh really offensive so if you if, if you know you know i guess if you don't know be careful if you go googling biggie lyrics um jerry shea where should you eat where would you even start says joe would anne have considered herself a helpless victim i doubt it but history has shown us that she was a victim of a king who could do whatever he felt like. Was Anne a villain? You could debate that forever and a day. Well, we don't have forever and a day, but we do have about seven minutes. Um, was Anne a villain? Hard to frame her as a villain in this story, isn't it? I don't think we anyone's reading the story of Anne Boleyn and getting the sense that, yeah, well, she got what was coming to her. I think that would be a super harsh reading. Um... 
do we feel that this was some this was actually justice even if in a sort of cosmic sense rather than a a, a strictly legal sense hmm <sighs> I think it's hard to tell the story these days with Anne as a villain, if it, if indeed it ever were. Um, Eva Sawyer's got, a, got an interesting point. Correct me if I'm wrong, she says, but didn't the execution of Anne essentially lay the foundations and precedents for executing monarchs? After Anne, there was Catherine Howard. That's Henry's... Forward and fifth wife, Mary Queen of Scots and Charles I. Most of all, I think what keeps her name on people's lips nearly 500 years later is the idea that history doesn't remember the well-behaved women. Anne was so strong and opinionated, and that was such a departure from what a queen was supposed to be, says Eva. Who goes on? If you want to read her, um, uh, the rest of her comments, to, I, you know, get on the on the subscriber thread and have a look. Did it lay the foundations for executing monarchs? Well, no, not quite. And actually, I think in the um, in the in the discussion, uh, people are pointing out that other monarchs had been had been killed. Richard the Second, Edward the Second, and Richard the Third. Uh, well, no, Jessica says Richard the Third. I suppose Richard the Third died in battle, and Henry the Sixth. I would have put on that list um, were all gotten rid of, but they weren't publicly executed. There was no. Um, I mean the 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 removals of certainly of Edward II, Richard II, and Henry VI were done by due process, even if <laughs> the parties concerned might not have been entirely happy about it. Um, at the point at which Edward II, Richard II, and Henry VI were removed from from power, they they were still alive. They were just deprived of office. Uh, subsequently, they all died in slightly shady circumstances. Um, but it's not the same, is it? That's not the same as um, as what happened with Anne. Now, Anne wasn't a monarch; she was a consort. But this uh, this was pretty high stakes stuff. By high stakes, I suppose I mean high profile, really. And yes, I suppose. I mean, maybe we can maybe we can draw a line from the execution of Anne the Queen through American Scots and all the way to Charles the First as the sort of the ultimate way to remove somebody from the political process uh, was put them on trial for their life. Maybe that holds, um, but maybe the line actually extends back. Beyond Anne, I'm thinking of Thomas of Lancaster here uh, in the 1320s. Hmm, yeah, I'd have to think about that a little bit longer, I think. Good point, though. Uh, Jenna Renee says, I think it's because Anne is so relatable to modern women in the modern world. She wanted to and did achieve a level of greatness and power unknown to most women of the time and in centuries since. She convinced the King of England to leave his own god brackets in a way yeah i think i think in a way definitely uh, in order to be with her in order to make her a queen she struggled and failed to keep that power in the face of the patriarchy but there was a time where she transcended the strict gender role she was given hmm yeah i think well guys i think the question is whether oh and sorry actually this is important jenna goes on to say i think we can all appreciate the story of someone trying to break the societal chains of their birth even more so when they fail as many of us do all good stuff. I think the question probably we've got to turn our minds to when we think about Anne and um, 
women in the modern world is to what degree are we looking at Anne and legitimately seeing uh, foreshadowing or sort of a pioneering role played by a woman um, in a patriarchal society inserting herself in politics in an unprecedented way that, that came to stand as an example or a sort of a, a paradigm shifter uh, that had direct consequences or indirect consequences in the world that followed. Is that, is that Anne? Are we, are we really talking about that with Anne? Could well be. Um, are we, you know, it, it, does she, in her immediate context of the 16th century, pave the way for acceptance of female rule in, in, in the form of her, well, I suppose, a stepdaughter? Is that right? At one stage, Mary, uh, you know, uh, Mary I and then her daughter, Elizabeth I. Or, and that can be true, it doesn't have to be or, and or, are we also looking... Do we often, should I say, look at Anne and find a very tempting canvas on which to paint uh, a character who is much more in a creation or a confection of modern feminism and we fit a large number of feminist ideals from the twentieth, late 20th and early 21st century on, uh, do we hang those on her shoulders in a way that she herself might not have recognised? Um, I think we can probably say, yes, both of those things are true. Yes, Anne was incredibly important uh, and paradigm-shifting and, uh, and so on in her own time. Maybe the conjunction is but. But all too often... Uh, we encumber her with a vast degree of anachronistic baggage that more properly belongs to the 20th and 21st century. Those things can be true, and that's it's super interesting to think about them. Right. It's half, pa- it's half past. Half an hour has elapsed. Um, and I've just blathered on and on. Sorry about that. There were so many great comments. I'm, I'm going to come nowhere near reading even a fraction of them. Or... A, a useful fraction of them. <sighs> Sorry. I do encourage you uh, to go and look at the, uh, the subscriber the, the thread because there's, and, you know, and it's still open, so you can, uh, you can carry on contributing and arguing in the comments. Ashley C. says, Anne was smart, young, beautiful, had the king in her control. She had it all, but it still wasn't enough to save her. I love how smart and forward-thinking she was. Shannon says, there's no shortage of ambitious men in history and their exploits, but the examples of ambitious women are few and far between. I think that's why Anne is popular. Yeah, good stuff. Um, One of her legacies, says Eleanor Shakespeare, is is as the other woman. She's the one who really starts it off when a man leaves his long-standing wife for a newer model. Mm, I think that might have been going on a little bit before, but okay. Uh, Political most of all, says Scott Gower, Anne was an embodiment of the 16th century's cracks in papal systemic power amidst another church schism. Um, Eileen Croft says she had all the attributes to keep the king enthralled, brackets for a while, alluring even though not a beauty, witty, intelligent, capable of holding a theological argument, good in bed, brackets, question mark, uh, a family loyal to the king. Unfortunately, that couldn't guarantee a son and heir, and that coupled with her opinions of people close to the king helped with her downfall. 
Okay, yep, 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 yep. Well, that's all good. But I think I'm going to leave the last word here to Maureen. Um, <laughs> because I think this circles us back to where we began with Anne. And Maureen, this is a wonderful comment, says, The Tudor age, and in particular Henry VIII's day, seems so relatable to our own. We see he left his ageing wife for a younger woman, the medieval midlife crisis. Anne was the other woman. Then he murdered her. I watched that same high drama on True Crime Network every day. That's, that's Well, there we go. I think that brings us full circle. Uh, i got to go. i got to bounce. Thank you for listening. Um, come again. I'm, we may take a hiatus next week because I've got to get an enormous and elaborate tattoo done. Don't know if I can record this while I'm doing that. We'll see. I might be back next week. We might take a, a, a short pause and come back the week after. The suspense, huh? Uh, thank you to subscribers. Thank you to everyone who's contributed on the thread. Thank you to non-subscribing listeners. Please do consider subscribing if you've enjoyed this. Um, and I will see you next time.